Shall I pray? Thank you, Lord, for these, your words, and we pray today as we look at them, you would give us um, understanding minds and obedient hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, this is a graph that I found on a site that had all sorts of graphs like this with lines going in this direction. This is the number of people living in absolute poverty from 1981 to 2011. And as you can see, the line is going downwards. Now, it's worth noting this graph at this time of year because we're in election season. Everybody's trying to convince us that the world is getting terribly worse, but they can solve our problems. In fact, what this website is set up to show is that in most ways that can be measured, the world is getting better. So infant mortality is falling, violent crime is falling, um, people are learning to read uh, at an earlier age, and more people are learning to read, and people are living longer. So you would think, given that we live in a time and a place where people are free in this way to do what they like, and even amongst the poorest of us we have access to things the people could never have imagined in generations past. The shackles are off, we're celebrating who we are. You would think we'd be, be all be deliriously happy. But we aren't. Most people, perhaps, is it fair to say, most people, many people that I meet, actually are very deeply uneasy, not even just with the state of the world around them, but uneasy with themselves. Now, when people are, have this unease with themselves, they tend to do one of two things. Some people hide it, so they internalise it. They feel uneasy and they retreat, keeping what they feel bad about hidden. And then there are some people who just revel in it, say to the world, yeah, you don't like this about me, I don't care, I'm free to do what I like, and they get more and more extreme in their expressions of it. Sometimes people are doing both. They're saying arrogantly to the world, I am the way that I am and I don't need you to excuse me. And privately they're nursing some deep brokenness, some hidden hurt, some terrible guilt. I've been reading recently um, this book. I really recommend it, Emma Scrivener, A New Day. It's a book about a woman who suffered from a very serious eating disorder and found some hope and healing and help from that through... Uh, being a Christian. And she describes in the book her uh, correspondence she has with someone else who has an eating disorder. And this person said two things in that letter. The first thing they said was, my eating disorder makes me feel strong because I'm in control of how I look to the world. See, I am who I am. Then later on in the same letter she said, but I'm always quiet because I feel ashamed. And then I'm disappointed in myself because I'm quiet. Now, I'm no expert on that particular issue, but isn't that a picture of how troubled many of us are? We are proud of our self-expression, even when it's damaging us. And we're hiding and nursing some deep unease. Now, sorry if that feels like a very dark way to begin a sermon. No jokes this week. But darkness hangs over this chapter of the Bible, doesn't it? The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. I mean, that is dark. The world is a troubled place. 
The story of two young men who died through their own stupidity hangs over this chapter. But who would have thought that here, in this centuries-old book, describing a ritual of a people who lived thousands of miles from here, a long time ago, there is the offer for you today of something thirst-quenchingly different from having to love yourself and having to hate yourself. Acted out in this odd, beautiful, bloody piece of liturgy is the offer, the call, the heartfelt cry of God for you to be drawn into the deepest possible place of safety and have everything that is wrong with you taken as far away as it can be. Here in this dusty piece of history, you are invited into the closest, most intimate relationship with the God who burns with holiness. And he offers to take every bad thing you've done, every terrible thing done to you somewhere so far away, it can never be used against you again. No hiding in self-hatred. No pretending in self-love. Now, the Bible is the story of a people rescued by the real God from the darkest of slavery to know him. But what we discover when the people are getting to know God is that when we have hearts that reject God, when we live in a world that rejects God, we get polluted by that. And so knowing the real God is complicated. And so to help the people, we've been looking at this picture of how God set up this camp for the people he'd rescued to live in. And you'll see in the picture there's a tent in the middle. That's the tent where they met with God. And then gathered around the tent are the leaders of each tribe of the people. And then gathered around the leaders are the tribes. And the picture is God is in the middle. He lives there. The knowledge of God spreads out from this tent to the leaders. And then that spreads out to the people. And the idea is that they spread out the knowledge of God to the world. The book is not for us to obey the book of Leviticus. We don't do the things. It says, you'll notice, no goats here today, although that would be fun. Though actually, I did watch some videos of goats being slaughtered in preparation for the sermon, and that was not fun. Um, But it was not for us to obey. It's a map or a play to show us some truth beyond itself. And this chapter we've got read today is right in the middle of the book. So again, if you've been here, you'll remember we've been thinking about this structure of the book, how the book sort of um, has one chapter in the middle and things that go out from it. And we've been going from the beginning, so we've done rituals, priesthood, purity, and now we're right in this middle central chapter of the book, the Day of Atonement, which just means what it says. That word atonement means at one mint. The day when the people are really brought to be at one with God. So it looks bizarre and it looks far away from us. But in this dark mine of Old Testament law, if we really dig, we'll find some diamonds. Diamonds which help us with our problem. Freedom from self-love and self-hate. And all of those answers are in the story of two goats. So, goat one, God.
God calls you right in. I've spent years singing words to hymns that I don't really understand. Um, incidentally, the people from West Derby don't like the children's song we did today because in order for it to rhyme, it's been renamed Derby West. But the type of people who live in West Derby don't approve of you filling with the name of the place. That's why they live in West Derby. Anyway, aside from that, uh, I spent years singing this hymn that had this, these words in it that described God as ineffably sublime. And we used to belt out this hymn with those words in it, ineffably sublime. People would be really singing it, and I bet nobody knew what it meant. So I looked it up, and what that's saying about God is this. God is some things are so perfect about him, they can't be expressed in words. So God's perfections are so far beyond us, it's hard even to express them. Now, I've started the talk by assuring you of God's welcome. Chapter 16 begins with the reminder of two people who did try and approach God and they died, and a warning to Aaron to not come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. So it's very confusing. Does God want people to approach him or not? If he does, why doesn't he, you know, just turn off the electricity? Have you ever stuck a knife in the toaster? Do not do it with the electricity switched on. You will die. Um, Why doesn't God just switch the electricity off? So make it safe for us to approach him when we want to. Instead, these guys approach him and they die. Well, the answer to that is, it is himself that God wants to give us. Say you meet me for the first time today and there's something about me you find very scary. You know, my accent or my colour of my top or... Um, I don't know, something scary about me. Everyone's laughing. can't imagine me being scary. If, in the, if you tell me that and you want us to be friends, I can try and hold that thing back for a little while, speak in a different accent or wear a different top or whatever. And I will try, so just let me know. But in the end, if I'm having to change so that you feel able to approach me, we're never going to have a real friendship. Because it won't be me you're getting to know. It will be like some pretend version of me made accessible to you. But it's not a big deal when it comes to me. I'm human. I can change. You know, go and buy a different t-shirt. It's not a big deal. But God can't change, doesn't change. He is unchanging. He was himself before we came along. And just as I would really rather share who I am with you rather than pretend to be different... God wants to pour out his kindness and draw us to really know him as he is. So we know him as he really is, or the whole thing is off. But the truth about God is that as he is, we are at risk because we're so different to him. We pollute, we mess up, even the places where he lives. Did you notice as we read through, it's the place where God lives that has to be made clean because people... Polluted. You think it's a very negative view of human beings. I think it's just true. Even in our very best moments, we mess up the world we're in. But God really wants to reach out to us. But even when he does, did you notice, Aaron has to make smoke in the tent so he won't accidentally see God and die. 
There's a problem here, isn't there? God wants us, but we can't. And so Aaron has to take these two goats out of the flock. He casts lots, and they have a different job each. The first is killed as what's called a sin offering for the people. And Aaron takes the blood, and he starts at the center of the tent, the most holy place, and puts some blood. Then he steps out into the sort of courtyard of the tent of meeting, he puts some blood there too. And then he steps further out to the altar, which is the furthest bit out. And he has to put some blood on that too. That's the bit the people are actually allowed to approach. Can you see what's happening? We start in this little holy room. And each place there is a mark of blood. And it opens the way a bit more. And a bit further. And a bit further. A path to God is opened. This blood somehow makes the tent clean. So God and the people have a path to each other. I've got lots of questions about that. Uh, Why does it work? I guess the biggest question really for us today, because it's not the world we live in, is what's the deal with blood? Why does the poor old goat have to kick the bucket? If God is as he's described in the Bible, if he claims full ownership of everything in the world, why would the death of a goat be something he wants? It's all a bit Game of Thrones, isn't it? Now that question, why blood, why an animal, is not a question that the Bible writers had never thought of. One of the later Bible writers wrote this, the book of Hebrews But those sacrifices, these ones, which were done every year, are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animals can't die in the place of people. It was a reminder of sins. For the hundreds of years that people did this, it didn't achieve anything in itself. It reminded the people that they had a problem. And it's a very useful reminder. Because as we've seen about people today, people are only too aware of their own weakness and mess. But they're very rare, very slow to accept that that's a God problem, a sin problem. So it wasn't achieving anything. Well, it was achieving something. It's like the way people who do stuff in a play on the stage, they aren't achieving anything in the real world, but they are communicating something. And as this was repeated every year, this was communicating the cry out for something that can make it okay for us to be welcomed by God. Once and for all. The message was there, wasn't it, very clearly. Listen, you are loved. God is reaching out to you. He's opening up a path to get to you. But that's not okay if you remain the way you are. I once was doing a university uh, events week. So I was having a Christian union and we were doing events to reach people who aren't Christians. And I was chatting to someone and I said to them, have you ever read any of the Bible? They weren't a Christian. Said, have you ever read any of the Bible? They said, yes, I've read the whole Old Testament. 
I was like, that's pretty impressive. Most Christians I know stop somewhere halfway through Leviticus. So to have read the whole Old Testament is very impressive. So I said, what did you think of it? He said, it was awful. It was so depressing. I said, oh, it's, you know, it's the story of God reaching his people. And what's, what's depressing about that? He said, it's all the blood everywhere. It's like sacrifice after sacrifice. Things being killed here, being killed there so people can get to God. I just thought, this is depressing. Couldn't God just sort it out that it all could be done once and be there for everybody? I was like, do you know that page that you've never got beyond the New Testament? You should turn it and read. Because that is the story of the New Testament. That Jesus is our actual substitute. That he did not want us to die approaching God and so died in our place. Again, one of the New Testament writers says this. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. You see, God presents him. It's better than the picture. Jesus is God himself coming into the world. And when he died on the cross, when he spilled his actual blood onto this world that we've polluted with pain and sin, he made a real path back to God for everybody. The New Testament says this tent was a model to help us understand where God lives. It was a picture of God's home. And as the priest kills the substitute and marks the path in blood right out to where the people are, God can come to them without any fear. But it was only one person, now and again, nervous of death. Now, once for all, anyone as they are, anytime, right now can come and know God that way. God is a welcomer. He says, come right into where I am. Now, there's a little detail here you may not have noticed. Um, we've talked about over this series how the priest, for most of his jobs, had to wear this rather grand outfit. It had gold and jewels and a funny hat. And uh, he sort of, you know, danced around in front of the uh, tent of meeting and said, hey, guys, I can bring God to you and you better respect me because you've got to do what I say because I'm the priest. He had to do that for most of his jobs. But did you notice for this job, which is the most important one, there was no special outfit, just normal white linen robes. And I guess the picture there is this, that the person God calls into the holiest of places is not in their role as a special person. No, they're exactly marked out to be not special, to be naked, to be exposed just as they come. Because the whole point is he's not accepted on this occasion because of something about him. He's accepted because of the blood If the blood was there, it didn't matter what type of day he'd had, whether he'd argued with his wife in the morning, whether he'd kicked a cat on the way into work at the tabernacle, whether he'd shouted at some noisy kids outside the tent. What other people thought of him, that was not relevant. In that moment, he was safe in this closeness to God because of the blood. 
So let's spell this out. It could not be clearer. God will not have anyone saying they are not good enough to be a Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. His blood is shed in our place. That is enough to make a path to God. For anyone just as they are. The point of this play is that the blood does the work for the person as he is. I think Leviticus is saying, listen, give up your sort of feeble, dead, trying to be good self-righteousness. Give up hiding, brokenness and sin. The first goat says God is pulling you by the blood of Jesus, something outside yourself, into the closest place with God. If you ask God for that to count for you as you are, it will. That's goat number one. Good number two, God sends sin right out. There's someone I have to work with sometimes, sadly not someone at Christchurch, who when we get into the bit of the discussion about what we're going to do, where we say, well, how much will this cost? They just say, and it's something that he wants to happen. He just says, oh, well, money, money's not a factor. And I sort of nervously say, well, it's quite a big factor as far as I'm concerned. But this person just has an amazing ability to extract money from people. So for him, it's not a factor. Now, the second goat is all about acting out the truth that Jesus says to you, your sin, it's not a factor. It's not that it's not real. It is real. It's not that it's not important. It is important. But as you move forward trusting Jesus, it's not a factor. After all of the goat killing and blood spreading, the priest turns to now, I would guess, the quite nervous second goat. And he places his hands on the goat's head and confesses. And the Bible uses these three words as what he has to confess. Has to confess his, the people's wickedness, which means their sort of bent hearts, their love of doing what is bad. Has to confess their rebellion, which means... They've seen what God wants from them, and they've deliberately not done it. And they had to confess their sins. That is, just the bad stuff they've done that there is no law against, but they knew perfectly well they shouldn't do. Now, he is saying uh, that he's being told, put your hand on the head of the goat and say, in this holy place, in our hearts we are twisted, Our attitude to you is that we reject you, and in our actions we do bad stuff. Now imagine that. His two sons have previously gone into God's presence, and because they were sinful, they died. And here is Moses telling Aaron, well what you need to do is go in and stand before the holiest of all gods and admit That everything inside of us turns away from you, that we see your law and deliberately break it, that we do bad things, you stand there in front of God and say that. I think I would have said if I was Aaron, um, and where's my danger money? That is a very dangerous thing to do, as I well know. The difference between him and the two who went before is that when Aaron confesses it, his hand is on the head of the goat 
He actually says, doesn't it? All of their sins are put onto the goat's head. And then the goat is taken outside the camp, far away from God and them. Now listen uh, to me, I'm asking you, calling you, I guess, pleading with you today to take the same crazy step. To not hide, but to think about all the ways you're broken and twisted. To bring out all the ways you're bent towards what is wrong. To consider all the bad stuff that comes out of you. To stop hiding it and tell God. To think seriously about all the ways you see what God wants and you deliberately do the opposite. To think about all the bad things that you do. To stop hiding and tell God to spit out all of that ugliness. But as you do it, place your hand, place your trust on Jesus as you confess that. And if you do... He takes all of those things away from God and away from you outside the camp. Jesus' blood drags you as you are into the burning presence of God. And then his death takes all of the stuff, that stuff you've confessed, as far away as it can be. Now, what does that mean? Because I feel like I've done that, but I still do bad things and I still feel messed up and I still break God's law. Well, what it means is this. It's removed in such a way that... It's not a factor. God will never deal with you on the basis that you're a messed up rebellious sinner. He will deal with you as a welcomed, loved child. You know, in the Bible, it is the devil, God's enemy, who is described as the great accuser. When there's someone saying to you, oh, you can't approach God because look at what you've done. It is not God saying that. God says, if you've trusted the one to take away sin, it's gone. I don't deal with you in the basis of it anymore. Never avoid God and Christians and feel uncomfortable at church because you're such a sinner. It's not a factor. Your sin is not something that affects how you're treated or welcomed or loved if you've confessed it and handed it to Jesus and he's taken it away. Jesus' blood pulls us as we are into the closest place of intimacy with God and takes away from that relationship any of the ugly mess, arrogant rejection, deliberate doing the wrong thing that we bring with us. Not a hint of that can be brought back. And used against you when you trust in Jesus. There's no need to flaunt. (laughs) Yeah, look at me, I'm brilliant, you need to accept me the way I am. No, we're pulled trembling into the presence of the holiest God. But there's no need to hide. We spit it all up because Jesus is here to take it away. We're safe, made clean. Our sin's gone and can't be used against us. 
don't come to God trying to put on the priest's other clothes, you know, saying, oh, well, look what I've done, I've done this, I'm really great. Don't ignore the goat. <laughs> Maybe you're thrashing around nervously. Maybe not even that, waltzing up to God confidently, not really thinking there's anything to think about. It's neither of those things are the deal. The God we're talking about does not want you to do your feeble best. The God whose perfect glory fills the universe says, I know the truth about you, but I've got a substitute. Trust him. I expect if you're here today and there's stuff in that list, iniquity, a twisted heart, rebellion, law-breaking, sin, bad actions, and you're trying desperately to keep it hidden. There's an addiction you want to keep a lid on. There's an ugly, envious way of thinking. And you sit here in church and think, I must not let anybody know or begin to get that, let that out. If this, that's the case, can I make a guess at how you feel? Tired. Do you know, on the day that all this is going on, atonement is being made, do you know what the rest of the people are doing? They're having rest. It's a holy rest, it's not lazing around. It is the rest the Bible describes that it comes of an amazed confidence that brought me to know the God who paid to take my sin away from me with the life of his own son. Flaunting, I have to prove I'm really great the way I am. Hiding, I must keep this under wraps. It's just exhausting. As we've just sung, Jesus says, come take my yoke and I will give you rest. One more detail. We discover at the end of the chapter that this whole offer includes the foreigners. Now, uh, that means you, if you're British. <laughs> if you've been British in there, you would have been a foreigner. We're not talking about people who are foreign to us. But the picture there is, no matter how unlike everybody else who's a Christian you are, no matter how far away, this soul-resting, deep-breathing acceptance, this rest from self-improvement, this rest from fighting to show my authentic self, it does mean it's for you. That peace that comes from knowing that at your worst, you're pulled into total safety. They had to solemnly complete this reminder every year. But we don't have to do it anymore. Never again someone has to die for us. Once for all, the work is finished and complete and we rest in it. Tired of hiding, tired of proving. We rest instead. So just in case someone ever does tell you, they are making the sacrifice again. That's rubbish. Jesus has finished it. But God knows we are still forgetters. There are lots of people, Christians in the world today, forgetting to enjoy this intimate closeness 
and freedom from their sin. They're fighting, not resting. And this reminder we are about to share is to help us find that rest again. Help us experience what is already ours. We're going to eat bread to remind us that a person died in our place. We're going to drink wine, which represents blood to remind us that the blood that can really do the job has been poured out onto this broken earth. And we're going to eat it and drink it because that's a way of saying, yeah, this is for me. All the hope is outside me and I want to take it into myself. I accept it so much, I'm eating it. So I want to say today, come. If you have trusted Jesus, but you're still hiding, still proving, come and rest. And if you've never before spat out all the sin that hides inside to God, with your hand on that great substitute, Jesus. If you've never before just come before God as you are, trusting the blood, well, do it now. Join with us and eat. Let's take a couple of moments of quiet.